We've been in a series in Hebrews uh, that started earlier this month, and um, we're just taking a piece at a time or a chapter at a time. And the series is called Better. Um, how we discover the, not just the better life, but what, how God on his ultimately is better, um, how the work of Jesus is better, and how the life he wants to shape us in is better. And today we want to talk about better rest. Better rest. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and um, we're going to read a portion of that today and jump into this. So Hebrews chapter 4, and as we've been doing in this series um, we love to just read the text as a whole and um, read through it, you know, slowly, let it speak to us. I encourage you as we're reading, uh, if you've got a pen or pencil, even to circle something that jumps out at you, maybe you want to look at it later to invite the Lord to, to speak to you in a specific way that maybe I might not even get to today. So let's just be open to that and make this an act of worship as we read this. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to read to verse 13. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Just some commentary. I think they is Israel, and we talked about that in the last message from chapter 3. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said so. So I declared on an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet, his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go because... Of their, unbel- of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today, that this he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter the rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Father, we say welcome to you. Welcome to your word and welcome to your spirit's work in our hearts right now. God, should any of this text speak to us in a specific way for us, Lord, point it out. We pray we're open to that. And as we walk through this, This morning, we just invite you and ask um, for you to lead us and guide us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is an interesting text. It kind of has some twists and turns, and it almost feels like the writer's going back and forth with some things and puts a lot of therefores in there and refers back to chapter 3 a couple of times. And if you were with us, maybe you caught some of those, um, those points, and I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast from the former messages. But here in this section, eight times, the author uses the word rest. 
eight times. I think, uh, you know, our attention is supposed to go there. This sense of what is rest and what is he talking about? I bet you you could finish this acronym, right? Thank God it's Friday. We all catch that, right? A lot of us say that on Wednesday or Thursday and looking towards Friday. And then when it gets to Friday, we're somewhat happy. Some people start their work week and, and hope that Monday would be Friday. Uh, some people get to Friday and still want to keep working. Uh, we have a various degrees of connection with our jobs and our workplaces. But I think regardless, even if we love our work, even if we love what we do, there is a sense where we look forward to rest. We look forward to a pause. And so society has this longing, and each and every one of us do, for rest from our work. There's something in us that tells us we're not made only to work. How many of you guys love like a really good nap? Who really enjoys a really, really good nap? I think naps have, have, uh, naps have made the news lately. And um, there's people in blogs and are talking about naps. And leadership writers are speaking about naps. And there's studies being made on famous people. How famous people have been known to take naps. Like Churchill and some American presidents and certain CEOs have come to realize that there's um, a certain benefit from taking a short nap at some point in your day. And uh, there's something there about that. This sense of being well rested and not being worried about that. Um, Tim Ferriss, he's a writer. He, he has this book called The 4-Hour work week and he's kind of become you know this go-to person for some people and what it means to do be effective at work and I was hearing an interview with him and he shares this story about um, the importance of sleep and how important it is to get sleep for your day and he said this he said if I have a bad night's sleep I will cancel my morning appointment I thought oh wow now first I thought Good for you. Not many people can do that, right? I mean, you're thinking, I wish I could cancel my morning appointment. I wish if I couldn't sleep between 3 and 5, I could call in and say, I'll see you at noon, right? You'd love to do that. I guess his schedule allows for him to do that. But what he's getting at is, he's getting at this sense where we all need rest. We all need to live out of rest. And what he's saying is not brand new. It's been written in the scriptures centuries before. And really describing this innate desire and need that all of us have, which is rest. And if that's where you're at today, Hebrews 4 is perfect for you because Hebrews 4 talks about rest and this rest that is available for you, that is available for me, that is available in the middle of our ordinary lives, our working lives, our relationships, our families, our demands. The context of Hebrews is written to a group of Christians who are feeling marginalized, who are feeling um, uh, uh, drained, who are possibly feeling down, tired, uh, emotionally uh, depleted. They're longing for rest. They're longing for a sense of relief in their spirit and possibly even in their bodies. The main message here through Hebrews 4 is that your faith in Jesus will actually give you a rest that you cannot find anywhere else. Your faith in Christ, the author is wanting to get our attention about, that we can find rest in Christ that we cannot find anywhere else. In verse 3, the author says, Now we who have believed enter that rest. Now we who have believed enter this rest that is promised by God. If we would walk through Hebrews 4 and go through this detailed look at it, we'll see that the author is pulling out these biblical ideas of rest from the whole of scriptures. 
and trying to help us see this biblical theme come out. And so there's different kinds of rest that the author talks about. Now, we read rest eight times in the text, but he actually or she actually refers to a few different kinds of rest. And I want to kind of put it in two, two categories, promised rest and practiced rest. Promised rest and practice rest. And I'm going to d- divide it in three categories. And the first one is this. Hebrews 4 alludes to something that's in the scriptures. And it's this sense of external rest. This sense of rest that we need at the end of a workday or the end of a work week or the end of a season. And the author brings back Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God, in the creation narrative, demonstrates to us that after six days of creating, six days of work, On the seventh day, it's a day that's made holy for God, but a day that's made for rest. Where the scriptures tell us that God rests, that God takes a break, that there's six days of work or six days of action, and then there's rest. And Hebrews points us back to this time in biblical history or to this time of how the biblical authors helped Israel, the first people that were reading this, understand how God has created them to live. That God longs for you and I to actually have a life, yeah, filled with productivity, but also filled with rest. When you read uh, Genesis 1 and 2, the way the author puts that together um, mentions this, that the first day creation happens, and then it was evening and morning on that first day. And then there was evening and morning on that second day. And then there was evening and morning on that third day. And it's interesting that Genesis tells us that it's evening and morning, not morning and evening. And the point of that is that we live out of rest. We don't just live and then rest. We live out of rest. It was evening and morning the first day. In other words, the day starts when our head hits the pillow. And then we live out of that rest. And the scriptures tries to teach us that we need this kind of rhythm in our lives. That God hasn't created human beings to work in a nonstop way. And so we see this pattern that is taught to us in the scriptures. Timothy Keller uh, was speaking about this topic and he quotes uh, an author from uh, the New York Times. A woman who writes this article who used to have a Jewish background. But then in her life became very, very secular. And completely left God out of the picture. Completely leaves religion out of the picture. And then she writes in a New York Times article some of the things she misses in her life. And one of the things she describes is how she missed Sabbath. How she missed Sabbath. And she found herself in a secular age with a secular mindset, with a secular worldview, going back to attend synagogue on Saturdays. She said, something was driving me there because I recognized I was missing something in my soul, in my spirit, in my body, in the rhythm of my life. I was missing Sabbath. I was missing the deep rest that Sabbath brought my mind and soul. And she writes in this article, this one line, she says, you know, we live in a society, and she's in New York City, we live in a society of workaholism, yet there's been this age-old institution that has stood against workaholism. It's called Judaism, which brought about the Sabbath. We get obstacles to rest because we're busy. Or maybe we like to say we're busy, or we like to be busy, or we feel we need to be busy. But we can be busy. And culture drives us to be driven. Culture leads us to have ambitious pursuit of more and more success and more excess. 
I don't know if you're ever with people that have constant pings and, and dings and whistles on their phone when you're with them. And, and they're like, they, like, there's some of us who look down on our phone because we, we need the distraction. And there's some of us who look down on our phones because something keeps coming at you from the screen because you get a text and then a, a message and then an alarm and then a phone call. And technology has actually made us busier. Technology has actually produced something that goes against rest. So technology is one of the obstacles to rest. Another obstacle to rest, I think, which is huge for all of us, and I fear this at times, is this. It's a fear of lack. It's a fear of, I don't have enough, and I should do something to have more. You ever click some of those articles that say, um, what do billionaires do to be successful? Just for fun. I don't really want to be a billionaire, but I, I, I clicked one, and it said 21 things that billionaires do and why they do them. And one of the things on the list was... They work even while they're on vacation. That they're always working. They're always tied to something. They're always connected to something because they, they want to keep making sure that, that the dream, that, that the pursuit, that the work is ongoing. So they never fully 100% detach. Because there's something in them that says, I need to keep driving this thing. I need to keep moving this thing. I need to keep building this thing. And even if I get away on my own or with my family and I'm on vacation, I will not disconnect. I'm going to make sure that I'll just have a five-minute touch point here and a 10-minute touch point here, and I'll do this Skype meeting, and I'll read up on this report. There's something, and I think that's part of it that all of us feel in some way or another. I know, I'll admit, I feel, I feel, feel this, that I sometimes fear that I will lack something that I will not have enough, that I will not be secure enough, that I will not have enough when I retire, that I will not have enough for my kids when they go to university, that I am not secure in all the things that I'm doing. That's a big one. And I think we can easily tie our work to our security. Now, to be honest, my work on a daily basis, I'm a pastor, if I meet two more people, I don't get more money. Right? Like, if I preach three more sermons in the year, it's not like I can put a little bit more to my RRSP. That's not how it works. But there's something that, like, just the way work works is that you feel tied to building your future. There's, there's why we work. We, it's, it's normal. We want to produce. We want, it's, it's healthy to work. But sometimes we can tie it so much to our security that we fear to lack something. Sometimes it's our identity, our obstacle to to rest. Traditionally, in culture, before the, you know, outside the last hundred years, many people's identity was caught up in their family, in their communities, um, in the people close to them. But now, in an, in an individualistic society, we want to be free of that stuff. We don't want our family to dictate what the rest of our lives is. We don't want our community, our little community, to dictate what the rest of our lives is. I want to be in control of my life. I want to pursue this. I want to build my identity. And what's that, what that has done for you and me in a, especially in a city like Montreal, if we no longer find our identity in family or community or in some of those personal things, now we're left to achieve it on our own. And now I'm left to achieve my identity. So how do I achieve my identity? Well, I've got to make sure that I'm good and I work enough and I make enough money and I have a decent status in society and I've achieved certain things and I've maybe made a certain amount of wealth. And so I'm now trying to make up for the identity that I don't get anywhere else. And some of the systems of this or symptoms of this are possession care. 
we have our possessions, and they're not bad to take care of our possessions, but often we, we just we want to make sure our possessions are good, and we take care of them, and we polish them every week, and we wax them every week, and we clean them, and we make sure they're in pristine condition, and it's good to steward your things well, but p- over-possession care is, is, can also be a little bit of an identity issue, and we overly take care of our homes and our cars and our stuff and all this stuff. I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of years ago who is, who is wealthy, and he had told me, he said, you know, the more stuff I have, the more expensive cars I have, the more, the more maintenance I have to do. It's just so much more work with the more things that I have. I had a friend of mine who had a Maserati, and he told me that his brakes were $4,000 just to change the brakes and the ordeal. And, and all that, all the extra care that goes into the, when we go from this level of stuff to this level of stuff to this level of stuff to this level of stuff. So there's possession care as a symptom. I think parental fatigue, if you're a parent, that's a symptom because we want to make sure our kids are set up. So we make sure that they're, 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 you know, athletic and moving and all that kind of stuff. And we make sure that they have a tutor and they're good at this stuff and they're, they're doing well in school and they make it to this level and that level and they, they have to have at least pretty good looking clothes so they can, you know, get around and look well and, and not be whatever. And so all of a sudden, parent, parent, being a parent is tiring. And it's like more and more and more. And we, we get so, that's parental fatigue can be a symptom of that. Entertainment fatigue. Because we look for things to escape in. And then sometimes we realize, you know, watching those three, four episodes in a row on Netflix it doesn't even make me happy. I don't actually feel rested. I feel drained. And I, my, my brain feels like mush and I don't know what to, to do anymore. And that's a symptom. Enter Sabbath rest. Enter this pattern we see in scriptures it's more than just stopping it's more than just a break it's about resting in god it's about finding our security and our hope and our identity in god and who he's made us to be in his provision so there's this kind of rest that we see this pattern that the scriptures teaches us about but there's another rest that the writer talks about and he they talk about social rest the social rest is really the Exodus story that, that this author refers to. And we read about it in, in chapter 3 of Hebrews, and, and we read it again in chapter 4, alluding to, to the Exodus story when God rescued Israel out of Egypt. Israel was being enslaved for years, and they worked and worked and worked, and, and then God rescued them out of that slavery and was leading them to something, was leading them to a promised land, a land called Canaan. And as God rescued them, They found themselves in the wilderness for years anticipating this. And we read here that one of the reasons many in that generation missed the promised land, it's because they they lacked belief. They were in unbelief or they didn't trust God or they disobeyed God. So many missed that promised land. But this, this kind of social rest that God was leading Israel to was this rest that would take them out of bondage into freedom, out of slavery into fruitfulness. Out of a sense that i got to work seven days a week, 24 hours a day, being oppressed by an oppressor to here's this land that you can cultivate and flourish and build. But you don't have to work it seven days a week. You don't have to keep pushing it all the time. So there was a sense of social rest that they anticipated in the promised land that God was going to give them outside of slavery and into freedom. 
And for them, this promised land was really a better life that included rest. Because in Egypt, they, had, they lived, they survived, but they didn't have life with rest. They just worked. So the land was life. And it included rhythm and rest. Work and rest. Work that wasn't slavery. A life that could be fruitful with a rhythm. And so they were able to live this new identity. They were able to live with this new source. It's interesting because it's this generation that received the Ten Commandments. And one of the Ten Commandments was observe the Sabbath and make it holy. Out of all the things that you would think would be so vital for a society, I get it. If we created a village together, we all live together in this village, the Ten Commandments would be helpful so you don't steal my rake, right? So you don't covet something in my house, so none of us kill each other. Like there was a good sense that the Ten Commandments, they make sense. Could we all admit they make sense? Even if you're here today and you're a guest and you know, you're kind of not sure what you believe in God, I think the Ten Commandments make sense. And one of the Ten Commandments was observe the Sabbath. In other words, don't become a people, don't become a society where you become slaves again to your own work. Observe the Sabbath and make it holy. Instead of creating an identity around slavery, create an identity around fruitfulness, around a God who provides, around rhythm and rest. God didn't make us this way. Lauren Winner, she's a, a, a girl probably now in her 40s. She became a Christian after spending most of her life up to her 20s in Orthodox Judaism. And she began following Jesus in university. Seven years later, she wanted to look back to her Jewish roots and see what her new lens of Christianity would tell her about her Jewish roots. And so she did. And she writes this book called Mudhouse Sabbath. And she, she, she writes about 14 different um, pieces of Judaism that she looks back on with the lens of Christianity and just trying to understand a little bit better even in her own life. And one of the things she talks about is Sabbath. And she talked about how in Sabbath... The rabbis would say, we, we remember and we observe the Sabbath. That from, if the Sabbath was Saturday, from Sunday to Wednesday, or Sunday to Tuesday, we remember the Sabbath. And then from Wednesday to Friday, we observe, we look forward to the Sabbath. So in a sense, all week long, even though they worked, they had a Sabbath mentality. All week long, they remembered that they're living out of Sabbath, and they're looking forward to Sabbath because it was something that replenished them, something that shaped their identity to live out of God's abundance and holiness. So there's this sense of what God had done even for Israel in this promised land, but why it's so important to observe this so we don't create lives like that. But here's this other kind of rest that Hebrews 4 talks about, and it's, it's just a different kind of rest. It's a rest that's beyond It's a rest that's beyond external, beyond a rhythm or pattern, beyond social. It's it's an eternal rest. It's an inner and eternal rest that this writer gets to and that he wants these readers to understand and even us. And and, and it's this eternal rest that points us beyond just the, the practice of taking a break or the practice of Sabbath. In a roller coaster kind of way, the, the author helps us understand this sense of eternal rest when we read this. So, you know, we read through Hebrews 4, and it's this 
this, this, this uh, line through Scripture. You know, God created the Sabbath, seven days, on the seventh day is holy. As Israel leaves Egypt, um, he teaches them to make, make sure they observe the Sabbath, they're promised this land so they can have social rest. Then Hebrews 3 and 4 quotes back to Psalm 95, which is possibly David, King David, who wrote this. And King David also alludes to that rest, but talks about a rest that is possible today. So there's this, this theme of thinking that, that then points to another day of rest, to another day that was coming that would be a different kind of rest, that would be a better rest, that would be a better kind of rest. An ultimate kind of rest. In verse 8, it says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua meaning the one after Moses who led Israel into the promised land. It gave them that social rest in the promised land. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Right? If, if God, if the ultimate rest was getting to the promised land for Israel, then God would not have spoken of another day of rest. God would not have said, there's another day coming and another kind of rest coming, but there is. In other words, even what God promised Israel through land, which was a life free from slavery, which was a life that would be in greater fulfillment than anything they had in Egypt, even though God did that, there was another day coming. There was another day coming. This is a lot, actually, just about the idea of land in the scriptures. The promised land was so vital But we do get this understanding that in Jesus, our faith, our identity is not tied up to a location. Our rest, our joy, our hope is not about a piece of land. It's about being in relationship with God. And here's this fulfillment. It's in Jesus. Jesus is the other day. If, if, so the author says, if Joshua, you know, talked about rest, but it wasn't the, the fullness of rest, and God was setting up another day, where's this other day? Well, this other day is Jesus. We go back to Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. God spoke in the past in other ways and other means, but in Jesus, he's told us everything. In Jesus, he's spoken the full story. So in verse 1 to 3, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it, For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed enter that rest. Here's this glimpse, this pointing forward. There's a rest that has come in Jesus that was never available before. That was never the fullness of any of the things that rest was really pointing to except now in Jesus. So the sense of striving, the sense of searching, the sense of longing for wholeness, the sense of even wanting to escape, the fullness of rest is in Jesus. Let me say something here. No matter how awesome our vacation will be, no matter how many hours we can get to ourselves on a weekend, no, no matter how much escape we can feel from a good movie, no, no matter, uh, you know, what a, a walk in the woods does for you. I love walking in the woods. No matter what that can do for you, or a great bike ride, or, or being with friends, as wonderful as it is, they're all important, but they're not ultimate. It's not the ultimate rest that God longs to give us. And one of the concerns of the author is this. Don't miss this ultimate rest. He's writing this to these believers in the first century. Don't miss the rest that comes when we put our faith in Jesus, God's son. See, just like that generation out of Exodus, there were some people 
who didn't have faith to obey God and they never entered that temporary time of rest, the promised land. The author says, don't miss it today. Don't miss the rest that God has for you. And so here's these pathways to rest, and we're going to end this briefly. And one is the practice of rest. In verse 11, Hebrews says, make every effort to enter that rest. So some of the things we just shared today, the external, the social, the patterns, practice rest, practice Sabbath. When we gather here today and we pause and we worship, that is part of our Sabbath. But it's more than that. It is stopping our work and trusting that God's in control. And giving all that to the Lord and saying, God, I trust you. I trust you with this week. I trust you with my work. I trust you that it doesn't all rely on me. And when we literally pause and just carve out, this will be holy for my relationship with the Lord as a gift to God and as a way to imitate God and as a way to trust God, when we practice that weekly, when we practice that in little pockets daily, when you take five minutes and you pause from your day and you say, I'm not going to accomplish anything. I'm going to pause and listen to the Lord. I'm going to read some scripture. I'm going to pray. That's a mini Sabbath. That's a mini point of saying, I'm not going to produce anything right now. I'm going to trust that while I stop for these 10 minutes, God's still at work. That's a mini Sabbath. When you stop on the weekend for Saturday or Sunday or whatever your Sabbath is, you are saying, I'm going to trust God for the whole of my life. I'm going, to know, I'm going to trust that it doesn't all depend on me. So practice Sabbath. You know, that's countercultural in our Montreal urban society. Practice Sabbath. And the last thing is, it's a promise. And it's a sense of belief. And here's what I want to just lead us to today as we close. Hebrews 4 says, believe in the promised proclamation from God. Believe, he's telling these, these readers in the first century, and he's telling us today, believe in the message that God has sent through his son, Jesus Christ. You will find rest there. But here's the point. Belief matters. Belief in Christ matters. And that's why the author in verse 3 says something incredible about combining our faith with our belief. About saying, and, and, and writes it here in verse Two, he says, they did not share, talking about that generation, the faith of those who obeyed. In other words, they heard the message, they understood the plan, but they didn't apply faith to it. And some of us, to be honest, let's, if we're honest today, some of us hear the message. Some of us hear the proclamation of Jesus. Some of us even fall into the behavior. I go to church. I serve. I'm going to give a little bit. I'm going to do something good for somebody. And, what, and the, the hearing and the acting or the behavior without faith, you're going to still feel restless. How many Christians serve and do some amazing good things but don't feel rest? Because they have not combined their faith with their belief and let it, and let it transform their hearts from the inside out. Faith is digesting it. If I could leave you with one metaphor today, you're going to go and eat somewhere today or maybe at home. But if you've ever been to somebody's house and they, if I, if I invite you to my house and I kind of, and I, I knew you needed some vitamins and some proteins and I knew you needed some good stuff. And I said, hey, here, come. So the table's set. And I'm like, here's this awesome fruit. I've picked out this fruit for you because I know you need these vitamins. And I've picked out these vegetables and this kind of meat. And, and here's what we're going to drink. And this is what's going on. And you're so excited. You're like, 
wow, Dave, you did all this for me? Like, you, you set this table for me? You set this amazing food for, for, just for me because you know that this food's going to benefit me and that it's going to change me and it's going to make me healthy? And so we sit there at this table and we talk and, and you acknowledge the food and we kind of do the routine where we're, we're around the table and it's like we're having a meal, but you never put anything in your mouth. You, just, you never touch the food. You never grab the fruit. You never take the vegetable. You never cut a piece of meat or whatever. And you never put it in your mouth. You never let the goodness that's right in front of you get inside and work in you. And this is what Hebrews 3 is getting, Hebrews 4 is getting at. Some people, they're like, wow, look at the message of Jesus. Look, God, look what you've done. Look at this awesome promise. And it's right before us. And some of us actually kind of get around the table and, and it looks like we're having supper. It looks like we're kind of following the routine and it looks like we're embracing it. But none of us, but some of us aren't taking the food. That's belief and faith combined. That's saying, take what God has given you. Take this message and put your faith in it. Trust Jesus. Trust him. Believe his message. And trust him, and he will give you full rest. Let's stand as we close in prayer today. There's this piece in, in Hebrews 4 that talks about the word of God, you know, being alive and active, like a sword, like a double-edged sword that penetrates and divides and it's, a, it's an awkward passage when we're talking about rest. But as we're reading this and we're listening to this today, that what's before us is this. God's message to you is so powerful and it's almost like God wants to do spiritual surgery on us. And he says, be, be open to this. God wants to come and, and open our hearts up and, and unclog the stuff that is stopping us from experiencing who he is. And his word is very powerful that way. It's very effective that way, but we need to be open to his word coming in and changing us and molding us. And in some ways, even as we come before God today, that could feel like almost we're becoming naked before God. Like, oh, wow, God, you can see everything because your word is alive and active and like a double-edged sword and penetrating deep within me. And God, I don't know if I want you to see that part of me. But that's the process that God wants to work in you so you can discover the rest he has in store for you in Jesus Christ. The one who sees our nakedness, Jesus, became naked on a cross for us. The one who can cut through our sinful heart is the one who had a spear go through his side. The one who can literally bring judgment on us because of our sin is the one who took the sins of the world upon him. So we can be free. So we can find freedom. That's better rest. That's better rest. Let's pray. And if you're here today and you feel like, maybe you feel like that illustration, like you've been hearing the message. You've been following the routine. You've been, you've been looking the part. But you've never combined what you've been hearing your belief and your faith. You've never combined it together. You've never fully surrendered to Jesus.
And I, I just want to give you an opportunity today to do that, to surrender to Jesus, to trust him, to not just hear, but to respond, to not just do, but to allow God to work in you so the motives of your doing will come out of a transformed heart where your faith in Christ is digested into your heart and you can call him Lord of your life. So if that's you today and you feel right now even to make that step of faith, that step of faith, combining faith to what you have been starting to believe or combining faith to what you're hearing, just want to give you a moment to do that. And it could be a simple word. as saying, Jesus, I trust you 100%. Jesus, I allow you to come and look into my heart and see the sin and come and cleanse me through your forgiving power. Jesus, forgive me. And I turn to you and invite you to lead my life. Father, for some who have maybe whispered that prayer or something like that prayer in their heart today, I just say thank you. And I pray that as they combine faith with what they're hearing, with their belief in you, that they would experience the powerful transformation of your spirit within them. God, for some of us here, maybe who are just, who have in some ways um, veered off and have been trying to do stuff all on our own, even walking with you, Lord, may you remind us today that in Christ, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you give us what we need to serve you and love you and follow you. So may the motives of our hearts even be transformed if they need to be. God, for many here looking for rest, I pray that this, these words, God, would just um, blow a fresh wind into their hearts and their lives this week that they would be able to move forward with practicing rest, but also believing fully in your promise, coming back to your promise and being reminded, being reminded that you are the source, the full source of our lives, the full source of rest. And we say thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen.